Well, this morning we're continuing um, this series. We've been going through all summer through the book of Acts. Uh, I've, I've been loving it. I've been enjoying it myself. But there are so many great lectionary texts that I would love to preach this morning also. That psalm is beautiful, Psalm 147. And then that gospel reading from John is mysterious, but also something that I think that many of us just gravitate towards, that God feeds us through his son Jesus. And it's such a wonderful uh, truth and reality there. But this morning we continue in our series in Acts. And the book of Acts narrates, as we've been saying again and again each week, it narrates the spread of the good news about Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And this good news about Jesus is that he is alive from the dead, he is alive from the dead, and that he is now king in heaven over all the earth. At his enthronement, right, that's at his ascension, what we saw in chapter 1, King Jesus commissioned his church to announce to the world in word and deed that he is alive from the dead and king over all. That's our mode of being in this world, is to be people who are announcing that Jesus is alive from the dead and king over all. And so after Jesus took his seat, on his throne at the right hand of God the Father, he pours out his Holy Spirit to empower the church, to empower you and me to do that work of the kingdom, to fulfill that mission right here in Winston-Salem. And as the church moves out from Jerusalem in the book of Acts and even now today, as the church moves out proclaiming the good news about Jesus, it encounters a variety of responses. Some who receive it, gladly and warmly welcome it. They take it in and they are utterly and radically transformed by embracing the good news about Jesus. That's what we saw last week with Lydia and the Philippian jailer. They received the good news, they were baptized, and they were radically transformed. And we saw evidence of that transformation, of that new life, that culture of the kingdom of God in their hospitality. However, the fallen powers of this old world, the world that's falling away, the power holders of the present evil age respond in dramatically different ways. We saw that last week as well at Philippi. There we saw three dark forces respond against and antagonistically against the good news of Jesus, particularly as it's embodied in Paul and those traveling with him as they were proclaiming it. And these were the dark spiritual forces, these demonic forces, economic forces, dark economic forces, and dark religious and political forces that react in hostile ways to the good news about Jesus. And as we move through Acts, I hope you're reading, I hope you're reading through the book of Acts this summer, reading and rereading this, this wonderful book, this family history, as it were. I hope you're reading it. And as you do that, and as we preach this book, it appears that in almost every place where the good news about Jesus is proclaimed, there are those responses. On the one end, warm reception. On the other end, they see the, the gospel as hostile or as dangerous or as a threat. And then there are those places in between which could care less or just maybe we'll hear you again. This is interesting, but, you know, it's kind of novel. But there's all these ones in between those two kind of polar opposites. But everywhere we see, we see at least those two poles. People warmly receiving the gospel and people reacting to it, perceiving it as something that is dangerous or subversive. And actually, this is a bit of an aside, Luke is writing Acts not like, to, to, to calm those fears in the Roman Empire that this movement of people that follow Jesus is not about overthrowing the Roman government. That's why throughout the second part of Acts, Luke has Paul in front of Roman officials over and over again, and they find no fault in him. 
right? The whole point, one of the, well, the whole point, but one of the main points at the end of the book of Acts, the second half of Acts, is kind of an apologetic for the church that is not a threat to the empire. What it is a threat to is Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture, idolatrous culture. It's about the transformation, the utter transformation of human culture, not a regime change. That's a, a bit of a aside. And our lesson this morning from Acts 17 does not break with this general pattern of the way the gospel is received. Paul arrives in Athens as Luke records in verses 16 through 17. I'll read them again. Now, while Paul was waiting in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so while Paul is in this marketplace reasoning with folks, he comes across and he's brought to the attention of some Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, which leads ultimately to his arrest and arraignment before the Areopagus. And this is a, a sort of cultural, religious, political court. It, by this time, it's been in establishment for some 600 and something years there in the city of, of Athens. And so Paul is brought on charges that he is saying something new that he is speaking about strange divinities named Jesus and the resurrection, Anastasis. Luke describes Paul, Paul's arrest and arraignment with a language that draws upon the memory of Socrates, who only 400 years earlier was before the same court, facing the same charges of saying something new. He faced charges of impiety and corrupting the young because he questioned Socrates questioned the legitimacy and authority of many of the accepted gods in the Athenian pantheon, and he also taught about new and strange gods to the folks there in Athens. And similarly, Paul is brought before this court, this same court, many years later, and charged with teaching something new about strange gods, Jesus and the resurrection. And if you didn't catch it there, uh, Luke is being somewhat ironic and making fun of the Athenians because he said they loved new things. They love to discuss and talk about new things, but Paul is brought up on the charge of saying something new. And so in one minute, he's, he's making fun of the Athenians and showing the inconsistencies there in Athens. But Paul indeed is, is brought up on these charges of saying something new. And so this scene is not, it's not a scene, of, it's not a mild scene. It's not just a curiosity. You know, the Athenian court there is not just curious about what Paul is saying. This is serious business. And this is why Luke draws, a, draws the reader's attention to Socrates to show that this arraignment of Paul carries the potential of death. Because Socrates was found guilty and sentenced to death by forced suicide. And that's what he did. And Paul here does not face a violent mob as we've seen in Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi and elsewhere in his travels. Rather, he faces a political body responsible for the common good in Athens. This body is seeking to discern whether or not Paul's teaching about Jesus is dangerous, whether or not it poses a threat to the communal good of the city, whether or not it may corrupt the young. They are weighing and judging Paul's gospel, right, the good news about Jesus, against their own gospel, against what they believe to be good and true and beautiful about reality, about their gods, and about the public order. And so Paul's speech then, I think, is instructive for us because we face a rapidly emerging post-Christian culture 
and society that similarly perceives Christianity and the good news about Jesus to be potentially dangerous and likely a threat to the common good. And in this increasingly post-Christian context, we will experience twin pressures. And here they are. One, how do we offer the good news about Jesus? That's what we've been concerned about this entire series through Acts. It's how do we proclaim the good news about Jesus? How do we offer this good news to those outside the church who view it as wrong and possibly dangerous? How do we explain ourselves? How do we give a defense for the hope that resides in us to folks that see us as plainly wrong and potentially dangerous? And then the second pressure is how do we ensure that the alternative and counterfeit gospel offered today in our culture does not entice and draw us away? Those are twin pressures that we feel daily, if not weekly. Paul's defense before this court offers a foundation upon which we may build responses, both intellectually, word, and practically through deeds to these twin pressures. But this morning, I'm not going to lead us um, in an effort to build those responses, though we need to do that. I think what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on that foundation that Paul embodies, that he displays here in his speech in Acts 17. And central to this foundation for Paul is the ability to accurately recognize and lovingly challenge the counterfeit gospel in his day and the same for our day in a post-Christian world. And so how do we recognize and challenge counterfeit gospels? You've probably heard this analogy before. We do it in the same way that law enforcement agencies train their officers to recognize counterfeit bills. Not by looking at fakes, but by intimately coming to know in and out the real thing, the real note. They study the texture, the, the ink, the font, the print, the size, the, the paper it's on. They study everything about the real McCoy so they can identify the counterfeit when it comes across their desk. This is how we recognize a counterfeit gospel. Not by obsessing over all the different ways, but by focusing on the real thing. By focusing on the truth of the good news about Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing. This is exactly what he does. This forms the foundation of his defense here before the Areopagos. And that is this. Paul knew the true gospel. He knew the true gospel as revealed in the full breadth of Holy Scripture from creation to final judgment and new creation. Paul knew the good news. It, Paul knew the good news. Inside and outside, he knew the good news about Jesus and God's kingdom. He knew it deep down in his bones. Just notice the way, I'll read it for a third time, the way Luke describes his reaction to life in Athens in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul saw a city and its life dominated by a counterfeit gospel, and he had a gut-level reaction. A gut-level reaction. And this gut-level reaction for Paul is born out of the hold the true gospel had on him at the deepest level of being, at his spirit. This is the man who will write in his letter to the church at Rome, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul renewed his mind by saturating his life in the true gospel, the real thing, 
as it is revealed in the full breadth, the full sweep of Scripture, and this formed the foundation of his defense before this court. And significant to this foundation is that Paul understands the gospel to be an announcement about where God is moving the history of the world. That would have been a radical departure from most of Greek thought at the time, which would have viewed the cycles of the cosmos as cyclical. You know, the earth is created and it burns up and gets recreated again and it burns up and gets recreated again and it's an unending cycle. But Paul is talking about an announcement, announcement of good news, that the earth is moving to a definitive end, to a culmination, to a point at which all things will be made new, not back into conflagration, not back into rebirth and then on again, but into a final and definite renewal, new life, resurrection life. You see, Paul begins his defense by starting at the beginning with the creator God. No new God here, Paul says. You know the unknown God? Let me tell you who he is. He's no new God. He's the one who made heaven and earth. He begins with the creator God. He begins with creation. He declares that the creator God will no longer overlook humanity's ignorance about him because the world as we know it in its brokenness is moving to its God-ordained end, its goal, its telos, its redemption and renewal in Jesus. And that end culminates at a future time that God has fixed when Jesus, as king, will return to judge. And for Paul here, he certainly has in mind the full Hebraic sense of judgment, of to judge. And Jesus will judge. He will, one, set the world right. Part of judgment isn't just leveling out punishment, but it's restitution, it's restoring, it's making whole again. And Jesus will come as our coming king, our long-awaited king, and he will come to judge, to make things new, to set things right. But he will also call the world to account. He will call the world to account for oppression and injustice, for sin and idolatry, and all its many and varied forms in our lives and in the lives of our institutions, he will call the world to account. So Paul ends his defense here by answering that question that they certainly would have had. How do we know this is true? How do we know? And Paul gives you an answer there. He gives them an answer in verse 31. God has given assurance to all. He has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. This long-awaited king, this coming judge, God raised him from the dead. Therefore, you know that new creation is here. And this is exactly how that proclamation provides assurance. So with the resurrection of Jesus, God's new world has begun. It's started. His being raised from the dead is the start, the paradigm case of the great setting to right which God will do for the whole cosmos at the end of the age. The risen body of Jesus is the one bit of this physical world that has already been set right and made new. Jesus' physical body, the one that was raised from the dead, is the down payment of this new creation. It's evidence that what God God has promised to do, he will do and can do. He can make dead things new. He can bring life again. And this Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's been enthroned as the king over all the earth so that he might spread that new life out 
across the world as the church bears witness, as the church announces his reign and his new life. The true story of the world is Paul's controlling narrative. It is the foundation. It is the foundation of his defense here before this court because it is the comprehensive story of the world that makes sense of all things. That's why, of all the things that he could say, Paul appeals to the story of Scripture. Give an account. Paul, what's this that you're saying? God created the world, the creator God. Things have gone wrong. There's ignorance in this world about the one who created it. But he has come to set all that right and to rectify all the injustices in the world by sending his son Jesus as king, as the rightful king. And Jesus bore that sin. He will become a judge one day, and we have an assurance that he will come and judge justly because God has guaranteed that. He's given us assurance and hope because he has raised him from the dead. That's Paul's answer to a, to a, a court that sees this message as potentially dangerous. Just a bold proclamation of the good news that's full of truth and goodness and beauty and taps into our longings and desires as human beings for love and belonging, for broken things to be restored. Paul appeals to the story, this majestic story of Scripture. And why is this important? It's important because Paul does not set the gospel in the framework of Greek philosophy. He does not set the gospel in the framework of Greek philosophy, for that would have utterly transformed the gospel into a counterfeit. He does not set the gospel in philosophical terms. He does not use Greek philosophy. He does not see Greek philosophy as legitimate conversation partner in an approach to God. And you may ask, well, doesn't he quote two Greek philosophers in verse 28? Didn't we see that and sing that in our antiphon? Both of those lines in the antiphon were both from the Greek world, one from a poem, one from uh, a philosopher. Didn't he do that? Yeah, he did. However, he takes these quotes and sets them within that overarching biblical story, and it utterly transforms them. We live and move and have our being in God. You're right, we do. But it's the God who created the world. It's the God who has sent a judge in Jesus and has redeemed him. We are God's offspring. We are his children. You're right, we are. But not the God, we're not the, the children of Zeus. We're not the children of these other gods. We're the children of the creator God, the one who made heaven and earth. So Paul uses these two phrases from Greek philosophy, and he utterly transforms them by setting them within a different frame of reference. And this frame of reference is a story about the creator God that's revealed in Scripture that climaxes with Jesus raised from the dead and enthroned as king and the coming judge. And so Paul incorporates these phrases into a completely different, comprehensive, and controlling narrative. And by doing so, he utterly transforms them and their meaning. And so Paul is not articulating the gospel in Greek philosophical terms. He is articulating an entirely different way of viewing the world. And why am I emphasizing this? Which could be maybe just seen as like somewhat heady or abstract point. Why is this important? Why am I emphasizing this? Here's why. Because an increasingly post-Christian culture and society has done to Christianity what Paul has done, what Paul did to the Greeks there at the Areopagos. Paul took their concepts and utterly transformed them by setting them within a completely different interpretive framework, by setting them within the true story of the world revealed in Scripture. 
Similarly, our culture, this post-Christian culture, at large has taken uniquely Christian concepts such as justice, equality, human worth, and love, and many more, and have removed them from the Christian interpretive framework and have utterly transformed them. Our culture has taken these concepts out of this sweep of Scripture, this story of God as creator and Christ as the coming redeemer and the one who will make all things new again. It has removed these concepts from this story and it has utterly transformed them into counterfeits, into hollowed out versions of the real thing. And you know, that's not, you know, no one likes a hollowed out version of the real thing. I mean, if you've had a Hershey kiss, you know it's a hollowed out version of the real thing which is a Wilbur Bud. If you've ever been to Lidditz, Pennsylvania, where my wife is from, go there, buy Wilbur Buds, and you will know what real chocolate tastes like. Okay? And we know this. I mean, who here is going to select the hollowed-out version of a beer in Natty Light when you can have something from Wise Man's? I mean, no one does that. We want the real thing. We don't want hollowed-out versions of something. Paul, likewise, is saying, I'm offering you the real thing. Why follow counterfeit things? Why follow out hollowed out versions? And this is exactly what our culture has done to these concepts, which are good and we should pursue these things. Love, justice, beauty, the worth of every human, equality. All these things are things that we should be pursuing, but on the terms of the gospel, on the terms of this majestic, miraculous story that moves from God as creator all the way to Jesus as redeemer and coming judge, the return of our king. Our culture's Interpretive framework, its controlling story, begins and ends with the individual self. Very similar to the one in ancient Greece. Theirs began, Paul identified, it begins with the human and moves to God. They reason from humanity to God. They made humans in their own likeness, or they made gods in their own likeness, and they made gods made out of their own imaginations. They reason from humanity to God. The starting point was the human. Our culture likewise starts with a human, but no longer reasons to God, reasons back upon ourselves. It begins and ends with me, and the goal of this story is to find self-fulfillment and affirmation of who I believe myself to be. And within this controlling story, the Christian concepts of love or equality or justice or human worth are utterly and radically transformed. They become pieces of a counterfeit gospel. Love is no longer defined by the self-giving and self-sacrificing God revealed in Jesus and his death on the cross. Rather, love is defined by the self-seeking individual who, to whom others must bow, including God. But it doesn't mean that everyone leans into the fullness of that, but that all has affected all and each and every one of us. Each of us are influenced by that. Each of us are susceptible to being duped and enticed by this counterfeit gospel, and it's easy to modulate. And I, just reflecting upon this sermon, I, I found myself, it's easy to modulate in and out for Christians and for myself between the good news of Jesus and this, ma- and this massive sweep that's revealed in the story of Scripture. Modulate between the good news revealed there and this counterfeit gospel revealed in our culture. It's easy, given the situation, given the p- people you're talking to, given the topic, to modulate in and out between these two, the real thing and the counterfeit gospel. And we can far too easily be swept up into advocating for love and justice in ways that run counter to the true story of the world. And we end up eating Hershey Kisses, right? Not Wilbur Buds. We end up drinking Natty Light and not a wise man brew. And this is why it is so important, because we should and we must advocate for all these things. 
We must pursue love. We must pursue justice. We must pursue equality and human worth in this world. These are good, true, and beautiful things that God has given and set in this world for us to pursue. It's a part of our humanity to be culture makers, to be people who make a place that's vibrant and full of life. That's why this is so important. But we must do this on the terms set by the true story of the world that begins with God, the Creator, climaxes in Jesus dying on the cross and raised from the dead and ends in the return of the King to judge the world, making all things new, a world full of love and justice. We must allow the true story of the world revealed in Scripture to form and shape the deepest level of our being, our gut level. We must allow it to shape our guts, our hearts, our minds, Wherever you think the deepest part of you resides, you must allow the gospel communicated throughout the full sweep of scripture to shape you. To form that gut level reaction to this world like Paul. Not to go to battle and argue, but to love. To tell people that there is hope in this world. That resurrection can come because it has come. That new life is here through Jesus. Christ Church, we need to be about the work of renewing our minds, our guts, our hearts, our spirits, the deepest level of our being, so that we may identify, so that we may identify, correctly identify the counterfeit gospel in our culture, and so that we can live to articulate the truth, goodness, and beauty of the true gospel. And so that we can articulate the truth, goodness, and the beauty of genuine love and justice, and equality, and human worth, and all the myriad host of things that this Christian world, or this world benefits from, from Christianity, and God's good revelation. All these things are defined by God's story of redemption. His redemptive love demonstrated in Jesus' self-denying death on the cross, of God assuring us by raising him from the dead, giving us hope, and in Jesus' return as king to righteously judge the world by making all things new. Christ Church, pour yourself into Scripture. Saturate yourself by it. Read and pray through Scripture and come here each Sunday because the liturgy is saturated with this divine redemptive drama that we experience each Sunday when we come here to the Word and to the table. And allow God's word, his gospel, to define for us what is true and flourishing love, justice, and value and worth in this world. May God help us to do just that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.